You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation. This season, we are sharing with you conversations with five spiritual entrepreneurs who were awarded the 2021 Tom Locke Innovative Leader Award from the Wesleyan Investive. For more information, visit award.wesleyaninvestive.org. Hi, friends. I'm Lisa Greenwood here with Casper Terkyle. So good to be with you again, Casper. Hey, Lisa. Great to be with you. We are so excited to share with you the first of our five interviews with the Locke Innovative Leader Award winners. It's so fun to talk to these amazing folks. I think I speak for both of us, Casper, when I say it is truly a privilege and a gift to be in conversation with each of these award winners. I keep just leaving these conversations wanting to be more like them, which I'm hoping is the right response. (laughs) Right. Right. So if you didn't catch our first episode in this series, I encourage you to check it out. In it, I pick Casper's brain about the spiritual landscape today, and we talk a bit about the Locke Innovative Leader Award. We also interview Tom Locke, the award's namesake which is an insightful conversation about purpose, generosity, and the relationship between the center and the edge of the institutional church. Also, don't forget to check out our show notes and website where you can find more information about our guests and additional resources related to each of our conversations. So today we're in conversation with Jen Bailey, who was named one of the 15 faith leaders to watch by the Center for American Progress. Jen is an ordained minister in the AME Church, Uh, a public theologian, a real national leader in the multi-faith movement for justice. She's the founder and executive director of Faith Matters Network, which you'll hear her talk about much more in this conversation. It's a womanist-led organization equipping community organizers, faith leaders, and activists with resources for connection, spiritual sustainability, and accompaniment. And that theme of, of healing and community building and, and social justice work is really a strong theme throughout this conversation as well. Jen points our attention so beautifully at the way in which formation and healing are, are really one and the same, the ways in which she has built spaces for people to, to refill their own well as they go out into the world to change it. Uh, it, it's just one of the many reasons why I've fallen in love with with Jen's work in this conversation. It, it was really powerful to me when she talked about the um, decisions that they had to make around mm. scale and depth, you know, essentially whether they were going to invest in going deep or right. going wide. And I think that every leader has to make those kinds of decisions along the way. And every time you make a choice, you have to get real about what you have to let go of. And in this case, it was a partnership. I mean, not the relationships. I mean, they've stayed in relationship, but but that partnership, they had to let go of, of that. And loss is a very real part of making choices along the way. Yeah, so much of innovation talk is about starting things. And I, I love that Jen took us to, to the other part of what life is, right, of, of the ending. And it fits yeah. so beautifully in that way. She talks about composting, right, this idea of composting right. religion, you know, letting something end so that something new new can be born. And it's it's not at all heady, this conversation. Jen is a very practical thinker and, and talker. And that that's so helpful as we're all trying to do this kind of work out in the world. So if, if you want, like, real talk, this is, this is the right conversation for you. Yes, so true. So enjoy our conversation with Jen.
Jen Bailey, we are so excited to be with you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's always good to have conversations with some of my favorite people. So this is a delight. <laughs> ditto, ditto, for sure. Um, so we want to start just by hearing your story. And and I know that when people ask me that, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's, that's too big. And so <laughs> if you'll just share with us some significant moments or encounters that have shaped you and, and brought you to this place in your life. I'm going to tell three stories, three quick vignettes that I think Great. illustrate how I got to where I'm going, how vocation has unfolded for me over the past 33 years of my life. So the first vignette is of me as a little girl running through the halls of Bethel AME Church in Quincy, Illinois. And I can very distinctly remember our sanctuary was upstairs in an upstairs level, and we just had a youth program. And I'm running through the middle aisle and I was stopped by Sister Catherine Weldon, who said to me, girl, you're going to preach someday. And I think I was like six or seven years old. I don't remember. I don't remember the details of it so much, but my mom would always call me back to that when I was unfolding in my ministerial call. She's like, you know, Sister Weldon done said you were going to preach someday since you were a little girl. And when I was ordained in the AME church, one of the first people to approach me at my ordination service was oh. Sister Weldon to say, I told you so. <laughs> so. I think what that story reflects is just the notion that vocation unfolds in community. And sometimes it mm-hmm. is other people seeing beyond you, your potential and where you're heading. And so I always say that our collective discernment is is indeed collective and that we are not formed in a vacuum, but that we are formed in relationship to other folks. Yeah. And Sister Catherine passed away last month. I believe she was in her early 90s. And so it's just so wonderful to think about all of those church mothers who shaped me as a young girl at my home church in Quincy, Illinois. So the second story I'll tell is a 9-11 story. So uh, as a millennial, I started high school in September of 2001 in Chicago. So I moved from my small town, Quincy, Illinois, to Chicago to start high school. And 9-11 was my second week of high school. And I remember just like a palatable sense of anxiety if you were in a major city that day and a real fear that like things were moving westward because at first there were the Twin Towers and then it was DC and then it was like a plane crash in Pennsylvania, I believe. And what was interesting about that moment for me was that having moved from a town that was 95% white and, you know, 5% everybody else, I'd started high school at... Whitney M. Young, Magnet High School, home of Michelle Obama. She's the most famous alum of my high school. Um, (laughs) At the time, it was one of the most diverse high schools in the United States. So Black folks were the majority, but at 30%, to give you sort of a context. And my homeroom, in my homeroom, I had for the first time was encountering and making becoming friends with kids who were Muslim. And so I had friends whose families were Palestinian and Pakistani. And I could see that day and in the days afterwards, the sense of fear that was beginning to, mm-hmm. to grip them and sort of this awareness at the age of 14, 15, that their lives would never be the same, which proved to be true as we think about surveillance of Muslim communities in the post 9-11 era. And I know for myself having grown up in a context in which I was a part of a of an other very much, that sense of otherization that I experienced and that I saw my friends experiencing um, really shaped not just my worldview, 
around religion and geopolitics, but also really shifted my worldview of what Christianity had to say to the Mm. religious other and what a true sense of belonging in the liberatory tradition of Black Christianity could say to welcoming and opening a space for relationship where there might not be um, space otherwise which pushed, it pushed some of the folks in my church who (laughs) were not necessarily inclined to have and enter into interfaith conversations. The long arc of that story is that I live interfaith relations on a day-to-day basis now. My husband is Jewish. (laughs) So as I think about my role as a spiritual leader in the 21st century, the conversations that we're having both within our communities and in-house and in terms of the Christian church, I think ought necessarily um, lift up conversations about religious difference and and the sort of insidious role of Christian supremacy and, mm-hmm. and those presumptions that we make about the nature of religious life in the United States feels really important. And I think the third vignette that I'll lift up vocationally, it's actually a recent one. It's a, it's a pandemic reality. So as we are still in the midst of the the COVID-19 crisis, I think I was surprised by how quickly my team at Faith Matters Network adapted to meet the moment in response to the pandemic. And for us, you know, Brian Stevenson from the Equal Justice Initiative talks about the necessity of being proximate to the pain. Mm-hmm. And as a womanist-led organization, that majority of my team are Black women, African-American women, and we know that Black communities were disproportionately and continue to be disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. We encountered that pretty early. One of my my dear colleagues, Mickey, lost her mom to COVID-19 early in the pandemic. And so I think the reality of what we were facing as not just a a nation, but as a global community and and how grief can inform (laughs) um, our actions became really central to what I think was a really human response. We hadn't intended on launching three new projects last year, but we found ourselves as an organization committed to collective and communal care, stepping into a need that didn't feel like an extension or mission drift, but felt like a natural extension of some of the work that we had already done. And so we started these things called midweek motivational moments with our partners at Auburn Seminary, offering a weekly check-in space for faith and spiritual leaders to hear a, a momentary moment of inspiration from an inspirational movement leader in the midst of lockdown. So they knew they weren't alone and there was a space for a community gathering afterwards We launched something called Community Care Office Hours, where we were providing free one-on-one support with our community care chaplains. Those are folks who were coming through, many of whom came through our movement chaplaincy program, who were offering care to first frontline responders, and just clergy folks who were asking big questions about what it meant to be clergy in the midst of a pandemic where job descriptions necessarily changed. And then finally, we offered in the fall a series called How We Get Through with uh, Collective Resilience for a World on Fire, which ahead of the presidential election was really a space for us to consider big questions around how do we do, how do we hold online virtual spiritual space? How do we do conflict in the midst of all of these partisan divides? And how do we hold sacred space for the question of what healing looks like on the other end of all of this? And so... That's, those are some vignettes from the story of my life that kind of tell us, I, I think, tell a bigger story <laughs> where I'm at at 33. 
Oh, so those are beautiful, Jen. And I want to pick up on your work with Faith Matters Network. Tell us a little bit about that and how it came to be. Oh, goodness. I'm looking at Casper because I think one of the first conversations I had um, at the origins of Faith Matters Network was with Casper and thinking about, I don't know what I'm doing, but I I sense that in the world, there is a need for something that's attending to some of the broken places and spaces within. And in the early days, the context of like, faith-rooted social movements. I don't know. I I feel like it's almost like the Avengers coming together. Like each of our team members had their own individual stories that came together to form a super group of sorts. But in in all seriousness, and I, I would say this to anyone who sees themselves as a spiritual innovator, I think our true purpose and calling has evolved over time as we've listened more deeply to this space that spirit has called us more deeply into. And so I think as a startup, Faith Matters Network, we knew that, or at least we had an inclination that part of our work was going to be about repair within movements. We got the sense in the early days of the organization, I did interviews with over 50 faith-rooted social justice organizations nationwide, trying to listen for where there was need. And what kept emerging in those conversations was a need for connection with other folks to break silos of isolation, a need for a repair where there had been harm done in and amongst groups, and uh, a need for long-term spiritual sustainability and accompaniment. So often faith leaders that we were talking to had felt like they were getting worn out and burning out and didn't necessarily have access to the rituals and practices that they taught other people but weren't actually exercising themselves for their own sense uh, of care. And they very much were in a position of leadership and so did not necessarily feel like they were surrounded by a community of care and support that was accompanying them on their walk and their journey. And so in the beginning, like many startups, we tried a lot of different things, (laughs) right? (laughs) To see like, you know, we threw a lot of stuff at the wall to see what stuck And what remained consistent, I think, in our work was this attention to care as a cornerstone for transformational social justice movements. And within that, recognizing that we felt a particular call towards working with faith leaders and community organizers and activists, those whose vocational trajectory really put them in the front lines of dealing with some of the the deepest crises that we see in our communities, whether that be an organizer who's working on economic justice issues in their local community, or a pastor who is trying to help their community figure out, families figure out how to pay their light bills, right? And like pulling into church reserves to be able to to help them with that. Even though the profile of the leaders we work with varies dramatically depending on context, what is true is that they are themselves healers. And so our tagline at FNM the past couple of years has been healing the healers. And we also recognize that healing is not a destination, but a journey that there are always going to be cycles of rupture and repair that are necessary. But we feel deeply committed. And this is very much grounded in this notion of brave space that Mickey, my colleague, has really centered for us of returning to and creating spaces where folks can be vulnerable, where folks can walk through a restorative and reparative process (laughs) together in their communities and that we're not going to get it right all the time and that it's the practice of not getting it right. It's the practice of coming back together time and time again and not giving up on one another that is 
really the where the where the juice is, where the where the community building work happens, even more so than like a direct action, right, in a protest or wherever you might imagine that happening in social movements. Jen, your your whole work life, and I think your whole life is just so rooted in relationships. And I mean, even when you talk about the work of Faith Matters Network, it's we, right? It's not I. And this is something that's so true across all five award winners is that that collaboration is at the heart of everything that you do. And you don't just seek out like easy partners who happen to be next door or organizations that have a really obvious alignment. Like you've built some really powerful and and challenging collaborations. And I'm thinking most importantly of of, uh, the People's Supper in the wake of the 2016 election where you partnered with the Dinner Party and Hollaback as two founding um, organizations to, to try and find some way to build relationships across those political differences. So I wonder if you could tell us a story about h- how you've navigated a challenge within a collaboration. Because it's easy to celebrate the things that work well, but like if it's a real collaboration, you have to face conflict. Mm-hmm. And and you have a grace of stepping in and staying in those difficult situations that I have seen personally and I admire you so much for. Like, Can, can you help us understand what, what does that look like? How do you do it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a specific example of conflict that has emerged in partnership and how we've worked through it. You know, I think I might lift up, you mentioned the People's Supper, which was has been by far our largest and most high profile partnership and collaboration. Um, maybe the story I want to tell is the story of how we have decided, how we decided to exit the day-to-day operations of the People's Supper and how to do that gracefully. (laughs) So, you know, um, the People's Supper launched in January 2017 as really a a project that was supposed to last 100 days. It was originally called 100 Days, 100 Dinners. And our goal was to gather people around dinner tables to really see one another as human again in the wake of what had been a very contentious election. Little did we know we were up for a contentious four years, and I think we're still in a state of deep contention. For sure. Um, And so we, along with our partners at the Dinner Party in Hollaback for those first couple of years, were really hosting suppers um, focused on questions and storytelling that were both bridging divides, so political, ideological, racial, religious divides, and creating spaces within communities to have that sort of connected conversation to do healing within specific communities that were already in relationship to one another. Mm. And the first year we hosted over a thousand of those suppers and it was very much like about scaling, right? And I think there's always a tension for innovators around this question of scale versus depth. Mm-hmm. And that they don't have to be mutually exclusive by any means, but there's a pressure, especially sure. if we're gonna be real with funders to like Absolutely. make this as big as possible, right? And so we did a really great job, I think, that first year of scaling very quickly. But I think what we realized in the the year that years that followed is that where the real juice was, where the real meat of the substance of what we created was, is like walking alongside communities in the, for the long haul. And as that realization was dawning upon us, I think particularly for, um, I don't want to speak for my dear friends at Hollaback, but for FNM, we had this secondary vocational realization that while the people supper in the methodology we still use, <laughs> right, was important to us that what we wanted to do most was apply what we'd been learning in that space to go deep within one mm. specific community. And so what that meant was 
that we needed a little bit more space to be able to do that sort of experimentation. And, and it meant exiting the day-to-day operations of what is still the prolific work of the people supper. And, you know, breakups don't have to be messy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. but, I mean, it, part of that was like untangling finances, um, yep. working through like, uh, agreements around use of the, the name and brand of the People's Supper. And there were some points, I think my co-founders, Lennon and Emily, would agree with this, that it got a little like rough. But what allowed us to do that and move through that was that we had been having weekly meetings and conversations mm-hmm. for over, you know, a year and a half, that there was a deep level of trust that was pushed upon, certainly, but that we could return to that friendship and we could return to that sense of trust and what what had us co-create the project to begin with as we were um, untangling ourselves. And, you know, I hold them so close that I have a photo on my desk of the three of us that I um, look at every day as a reminder of not just those mm. friendships that were formed, but of, of the possibility of collaboration. And so... And it was beautiful, right? So we aren't involved in the day-to-day operations of the People's Supper, but we applied that to our work in North Carolina through a program called Disciples of Welcome that works with United Methodist ministers there uh, around this notion of radical hospitality and bridging divides in in the context of the Carolinas. And we got to invite Lennon and some friends from the People's Supper to help us get initiate our cohort. And that work continues to this day. I was just on the phone with them yesterday. So, um, <laughs> So all that is to say, like, it doesn't have to be messy. It right. will probably will be. Collaborations, like, people are messy. But if you can maintain a sense of the core values and the relationships that helped found this, the collaboration in the first place, that is something to lean on when things get, get tough. It's so interesting to hear you talk because you use the language of experimentation and listening and responding, like classic elements of of kind of innovation strategies. And this is this is an award for spiritual innovation, and you are that person. And yet, you are the first person to be like, "This is an innovation." <laughs> you know, like it's, it, you, you are you are continuing practices and traditions, particularly from the Black Church, that maybe have not been seen or recognized or lifted up by white America in the same way. And, and yet you are also doing something new. You have this amazing turn of phrase that I use all the time about composting religion, of finding things that may have fulfilled its purpose and can give give new life. And so I'm, I'm curious, how do you pay attention to, if you're thinking about a new program, if you're thinking about a new partnership, like what do you hold on to from tradition and, and how do you know when it's time to let go of something? Yeah, there's a phrase that I've heard from friends at the Leadership Foundation's tradition to innovation, right? That that there is a way in which I think our work and the work of many of our colleagues across our, our ecosystem, and when I talk about our ecosystem, I'm talking about folks who are working at this sort of nexus where spiritual traditions, um, social healing, and social justice work meet, right? So that's mm-hmm. very three streams. And I think what unites us is the sense that what we're doing is the continuation of a story, not a brand new story we're starting ourselves. And so mm, mm. when we talk about 
you know, specifically the work that my colleagues Mickey and Hillary lead in movement chaplaincy, the the vocation of a movement chaplain as like a certificate <laughs> that you can get through Faith Matters Network may be new. But the fact is there have been people who've served the role of caregiver and caretaker within social movements for a very long time. It was the, mm-hmm. the folks who were making the sandwiches while folks were protesting during the Southern Freedom Movement, right? It is the folks who for a long time have just literally put their bodies between, you know, law enforcement and protesters Mm -hmm. as a, as a way of mediating conflict in certain social action spaces. And so I say all that to say like, ain't nothing new under the sun. Isn't Mm -hmm. there a scripture about that? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I think that if we think about time as not linear, but circular, Mm. I think there are different, moments that call us back and call us forward, right? So I like to think about time as like this round wheel that goes round and round, but it also moves us forward or can move us back (laughs) depending on the moment of history that we're in. And I think this particular moment in history is calling for us to recover some of what has been lost over the past 50 years Hmm. in terms of our spiritual practice, in terms of what it means to be and do life (laughs) together very practically as we become more and more individual and isolated, just demographically, we don't live together anymore in the same ways that we used to. And you know, part of this is tied to like, occasionally I'm still clergy in a church, right? Like I'm still clergy in the AME church and I've not left the AME church in part because so much of who I am has been deeply shaped and formed by the institution that is, that is my local church in particular and the relationships that I'm able to maintain there, which are intergenerational, which is very rare that I have spaces mm-hmm. for intergenerational relationships and friendships, which is, um, annoying right like there's nothing worse than like official board meetings I love my pastor but you know like you know navigating the muck of like whether or not we're gonna allow people to park in our parking lot during games like you know and like that is the stuff of community is like figuring out and wading through that space and so I say all that to say that there are certainly ways in which organized religion is changing in the U.S. context. And there's certainly ways in which institutions are just collapsing around us. But rather than seeing that as a space or solely a space for anxiety, understanding and thinking, for me, the faithful response is, well, what is what is the thing that wants to emerge in this moment that spirit and God is calling us mm. towards, even as there are things that are always dying, <laughs> right? And there are things that are always blooming beautifully. Like that question of what wants to emerge is one that I think I, I pay attention to a lot. And that it is very much a continuation of work that has been handed off to me. So one of the things I've always just found so inspiring in you, Jen, is just how rooted you are in your faith. I mean, just listening to you talk about your connection with the inherited institutional church. And, and it's a, it's, you know, I think for all of us that are ordained and deeply rooted in the church, there's this sort of push pull relationship as we draw on the tradition and we love it. And, and it, it makes us who we are and it, and it's out of that, that we do the work we do. And it's challenging at times. So, um, so I, 
I guess I would love to hear you. I know that you are deeply rooted in your faith mm-hmm. and your tradition, and you've even named this amazing organization and movement that you have birthed faith matters. Mm. <laughs> right. And, and so I'm, I'm interested in, are there points at which where sacred and secular intersect that it's hard or lovely or challenging? I mean, what does that look like in your everyday life with faith matters network and the work that you do? So I think the first thing I want to say is that our definition of faith is pretty broad. So yeah, it's a, sure. it's very much as we think about that term, though certainly Christocentric in ways that it, you know I want to continue to wrestle with. <laughs> we are not an explicitly Christian organization. When we talk about faith, what we are talking about is belief in a power that is greater than ourselves and higher than ourselves. And I think that that can look like a lot of different things. And I think particularly as a millennial and who's now mentoring Gen Zers, you know, that that faith could be in something called God, that could be in something called community or justice or equity, right? And so we have a pretty broad and loose understanding of what what we what we mean when we say faith. And then I'm I'm hearing like the clarion call of my husband, who's a religious studies scholar who studies <laughs> like bounds of like what is called in quotes sacred and what is called religious <laughs> in the back of my head. And he's brilliant. Everybody should read his work. His name is Ira Helderman. Plug for the boo. Um, <laughs> um, awesome. And, you know, I think, I think that like, I don't know that I see a true distinction between the two, right? Like mm. I think that Part of what maybe I might argue we're recovering in this moment that has, you know, the past couple of hundred years have been so dedicated to this enlightenment project of separating the sacred from the secular or calling something secular. But the reality is we exist in a space that mm. is right there in the in-between. Like I, my worldview is inherently influenced by what I would call the spiritual, right? Even as I'm operating in secular spaces, quote unquote, secular spaces. And I think what is also true for me is that I am most impactful in some of those non-explicitly religious spaces when I am authentic to who I am, right? So that's, I will that's something I love. <laughs> like that I'm, I'm Reverend Jen, I believe God is real. I mean it when I say that I believe God is real and I know that that might, and that's just who I am. And I found particularly in movement spaces that where there are a lot of folks who've been harmed by institutional religion, especially um, my queer siblings, like being authentic about who I am and where I come from and is also about redefining the face of faith for some people. Part of what I, I, I'm thinking about, and this is true for all members of my team, is that I built a team and we've built a team of folks who have always been edge folks who operate in the, the middle of a lot of different spaces and places that may um, seem contradictory or unconventional. And the thing about being an edge person is that it allows you to see more clearly than it, mm-hmm. when you're at the center of something. And uh, move more fluidly amongst a lot of different types of institutions and spaces. And so I feel just as comfortable having conversations with movement leaders who are staunch atheists, <laughs> and, but who are working towards goals around racial equity in communities across the country as I do like 
sitting with more conservative evangelical folks, right? And that is by nature, I think, an extension of my story and where I come from mm-hmm. and is a particular part of my call that I don't wish upon everybody. <laughs> like not everybody is called to be a bridge builder. In fact, like it would be unethical to ask some folks to bridge in some spaces that are inherently can be perceived as harmful to their personhood. And so I gladly take up that mantle as part of what God is calling me to in this season. Hopefully it's not forever. Like I would love for all the world's problems to be solved so I can like be an interior designer and hang out with my baby all the time. Like um, that would be true. <laughs> be an ice cream tester. Yeah. <laughs> ice cream tester would be amazing. I, You know, you, you use that language of bridge building. I also think of it as a like a, a, a language translator, because when, when you walk into a room, it's not that you impose your definition of the sacred onto that secular space. Like I've, I've seen you awaken for people that sense of the sacred for them. And that, you know, whether it was your involvement with, with interfaith youth call, which I know continues obviously your marriage, you know, in an interfaith marriage, like you just, you just have that incredible gift. And it's, it's something I think we can only learn by stepping into those relationships of difference. And, and you've just, you've just become ninja skilled at that. So I, I, I love seeing that. All right, Jen, we've got some rapid fire questions for you. So try and keep this just, just, just a couple of sentences, which I know you're going to be able to do because these are really complex questions and you can find clarity and complexity. So the first one is, when you think back, you know, maybe it's that six-year-old running through the church corridor. Maybe it's that, you know, high school kid looking around the homeroom. What do you wish you'd known as a young woman that you know now as this award-winning young professional <laughs> leader, ED of an organization? It's okay to move s- slow mm. <laughs> and that. throughout the course of your career, your vocation, which are not the same thing. I probably would tell myself career and vocation are not the same thing. You're going to take on many different roles and there's going to be a pressure for you to move fast because everything's going to feel urgent in the world and you will live many lives. And so it's okay to pace yourself. Mm. So I think that's what I would have told my young self is that it's okay to pace yourself and not have to do everything all at once. Beautiful. You navigate church spaces, secular spaces all the time. What do you wish leaders in the church, and I, I mean that in a broad sense, you know, religious institutions, the, the broader Wesleyan systems, what do you wish leaders in the church knew? What do I wish leaders in the church knew? Ooh, let me not get in trouble with my bishops. Let me answer that question. <laughs> um, that it is okay to be inspired by things that happen outside the four walls of your local church. Mm. that God is still unfolding God's mission and purpose in the world. And it may not look like Mm -hmm. the spaces of inspiration may not look like the spaces where you traditionally go to, to be inspired. And that there are spiritual leaders who are not clergy, who are beginning to, to innovate and respond to the urgent needs of the world. And they can be our teachers as well, even if they don't have a collar on. Big final one. When you think, you know, you're a proud carrier of the AME tradition, when you think about Wesleyanism in its in its kind of core, when you think about what's at the heart of that tradition for you, what is it? What sits at the very center? 
So John Wesley reminds us that the world is our parish, that we are not limited by the four walls of the institutional church, although that is important that we have the opportunity to be in and amongst the people and proximate to them. Again, the church universal is not just about a building, although I do think the building is important <laughs> and, and crucial, but that um, the work of the gospel is a work that is necessarily proximate to the pain. I think about John Wesley mm. wading through the East end of London and sitting with people who were alcoholics and others. I think about Richard Allen doing the same with freed black folks and folks who are escaping slavery, right? That we are uh, at our core, a reform movement and mm. <laughs> that we shouldn't be afraid. If we take up the mantle of being proximate to the pain, we will necessarily be transformed and changed. And that that is a core element uh, of the Wesleyan tradition, that constant um, praxis of being proximate and then being transformed. And so let us not be afraid to be transformed because God is still speaking even now in a new way. Okay, preacher, I'm with you. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. (laughs) There we go. Yeah. So Jen... We want to end our time together with a blessing for you, and you are um, such a gift. I mean, truly a gift in this season, which is, you know, so full of loss and possibility. So we give thanks to God for you, and we pray God's blessing on you and your family, that you and Ira and Max may be knit together with deep joy and plenty of grace that you and your Faith Matters Network family, Mickey, Margaret, Brittany, Ristina, Gemma, Allie, Hillary, Gloria, and Corrine, may experience the kind of healing and love that you so generously offer others. And Jen, may the God of church hallways and brave spaces fill you with radical hope, hope that is rooted in the assurance that you are known fully and loved completely. By the grace of God, may it be so. Igniting Imagination is a production of the Leadership Ministry Team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation with excellent editing support from Truthwork Media. The beautiful music in our episode is from Mark Miller. For more information about Mark, visit his website at markamillermusic.com and find his music on YouTube. Make sure to view our show notes and website for more information about our guests and how you can follow them. I'm Blair Thompson-White, and from all of us at Leadership Ministry, thanks for listening.